Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and um, welcome uh, to the call today for what I'm sure will be a very thought-provoking discussion on the uh, Camp David summit yesterday between President Obama and Gulf leaders and the implications of that meeting and the results of the meeting for the future of the Gulf, uh, U.S. Gulf partnership. Today's call is part of our members' conference call series, which provides our members from around the world an exclusive opportunity to dialogue directly with experts and policymakers. As was stated, but is worth reinforcing, this call is on the record. We had the pleasure of hosting UAE Ambassador Yusuf Al-Taiba um, and many other experts at the Atlantic Council last week to discuss the Camp David Summit, so we previewed it. Um, at that time and since, Ambassador Al-Taiba was clear that he felt the U.S. should move past a tacit security arrangement and move on towards a more formalized agreement. Uh, a position, by the way, that was articulated in two recent Atlantic Council issue briefs. I, I happen to be the co-author with Bilal Saab of both of those. One called The Artful Balance, The Future of U.S. Strategy and Posture in the Gulf, and then one released just last week, uh, Beyond Camp David, A Gradualist Strategy to Upgrade the U.S. Gulf Security Partnership. Certainly, President Obama's reassurance to the Gulf states yesterday at the summit offered some very vocal and public assurances to Gulf officials, uh, but this meeting occurred against the backdrop of the nuclear negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one. The Gulf states are longstanding partners uh, and, and in many ways are sources of stability in, in a region that's very dynamic and in many cases very uh, chaotic. So um, the, the administration certainly was trying to convince the Gulf states to support the nuclear agreement or at least the outlines of the agreement, because it's not final yet, um, but also was seeking to reassure them that uh, the U.S. certainly is focused on the nuclear aspects of the challenge that Iran poses, but in particular for the Gulf states, that it is also attentive to and willing to work with the Gulf states on countering Iran's destabilizing activities in places like Syria, in Yemen, and elsewhere. So the administration certainly aimed to counter the narrative uh, which was reinforced by the absence of the Saudi king and the Bahraini king at Camp David. The narrative that it's not doing enough to protect the Gulf and common interests from Iranian hegemony. There were roughly 10 hours of talks. Uh, the president and Gulf officials then had the opportunity afterwards to summarize those talks. I commend, if you, and if you haven't seen it, the annex that was released. Um, uh, Pursuant to the results of the talks, there are a couple of tidbits in there which we'll cover, but let me now get right to the conversation. Joining us today to offer his perspective first on yesterday's uh, development is Doug Zakheim. He is a former Undersecretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer of the, of the Department of Defense. He's a senior fellow at CNA and a board director at the Atlantic Council. We're also joined in particular uh, for a both perspective by Michel Algargawi. He's the managing director of the Delma Institute in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Dub and Michel will give opening remarks, after which we'll move into a moderated Q&A session. And if you're um, asking questions, please state your name and affiliation before doing so. And now let me turn it over to Dub to hear his thoughts. Well, thanks very much, Barry. Um, pleasure to be on the call. Uh, my basic takeaway, bottom line up front, as it were, is um, much ado about very little. Um, clearly, there's tremendous unease in the Gulf, and uh, there has been for some time about Iran and about 
just where the United States intends to go beyond the, the framework agreement and, frankly, beyond the nuclear agreement. Uh, I've been dealing with the Gulf both in an official and an unofficial capacity for about 25 years, and I have never, ever seen Gulf leaders as anxious and as nervous uh, as they are today. Now, the people who came to Camp David were, as Gulf people always are, polite. Um, they were very respectful. Um, by the way, a significant contrast with, say, the behavior of Mr. Netanyahu when he was here. Um, but regardless of, of behavior, of public behavior, I think the fear is uh, one that is common to both the Israelis and the Gulf states. And in fact, it's interesting that um, there really hasn't been a peep out of Israel regarding uh, how much or what quality uh, of arms the United States would ship. Uh, the Israeli condition is uh, maintain the qualitative edge, but whereas in the past it was, well, let's make sure the Arabs don't get anything very, very good, now it's let them get what they need and we'll just get something better. So it's quite a shift. And then at the end of the day, um, not all that much was given uh, that already hadn't been promised. Uh, and you didn't hear much about F-35s, you didn't hear much about bunker busters, uh, and so in that regard, uh, there wasn't really much of a breakthrough. Uh, the big promises, uh, namely that uh, we, we essentially will have uh, the backs of our Gulf state friends, um, because there was no formal uh, announcement of, of an intention to reach some kind of formal agreement or treaty, um, what there was instead was promises of things that we've promised before. Uh, and to say that we will help defend the Gulf states makes sense in the context of the Saddam Hussein attack in Kuwait, but that's not how Iran operates. Uh, the real issue is, would the United States intervene if there were trouble in the eastern province? Would the United States intervene if there were riots in Bahrain? We haven't until now. In fact, we've penalized the Bahrainis. We don't sell them arms anywhere near as quickly as they need. So it's not obvious to me just what exactly um, our friends in the Gulf got out of this agreement. Uh, and, of course, there was really no backtracking on what's a clear determination on the part of the administration to reach a deal with the Iranians. Uh, and then what? Uh, are they going to become part of the so-called international order? Uh, what does that mean? What happens to all the money that then gets released, the, the frozen funds that will be unfrozen? Uh, would those funds be used to, as I said, uh, foment trouble in, in the eastern province or in Bahrain or, or continue to support the Houthis? Not much clarity about any of that. So uh, it seems to me that while the, the the noises that were made on the American side were seemingly positive and the, the politeness on the Arab side was uh, to be expected, uh, I just don't see a, a tremendous outcome here or a real degree of reassurance. And by the way, one other thing, uh, of, of the two, really the, the, the two leaders who came, um, Kuwait, of course, uh, would come. I mean, we, we came to their assistance. I'm not surprised that they came. We also have a presence in Kuwait, and we have a huge presence in Qatar. Uh, after all, Abu Dhabi is there, which means that they both feel somewhat confident that the United States is already there with forces on the ground. Um, the others didn't show. And while uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed is clearly a power in the Emirates, my guess is that he has been such a long-standing friend of the United States 
for so many years, decades really. Uh, he's just waiting, uh, waiting the president out. There'll be a new president, and I think he hopes that uh, the new president will be more understanding of the Emirates' position. The Emirates are no friends of the Iranians and haven't been since Babamus and the tombs were seized. So, uh, all in all, uh, I just didn't see very much in this summit. Thanks very much, Dov. Uh, a very interesting set of insights um, that I would like to come back to you on after um, we hear initially also from Michel Algorgali. So, uh, Michel, we'd love to hear your thoughts now as well. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I think there's uh, one thing I wanted to kind of say as kind of a local insider about a specific thing, which is uh, the leader, the president of the UAE, um, is really, really, really unwell, and it would have been very, very difficult for him. I don't think he actually can leave the UAE. He's been really, really primarily bedridden. And so it's important to note that uh, I saw a lot of media saying with only two leaders, and that's basically a snob, and four are un, un, you know, uh, unwilling to come. I think Sultan Qaboos and Sheikh Khalifa of Oman and the UAE, respectively, are both very, very unwell. And uh, even if they wanted to come, it would have been very difficult. So just to kind of clarify that very quickly. Uh, moving along. Uh, so here's my readout. I think what's happening in, is that we are kind of muddling through on the Iranian file. And what I mean by that is that we're not talking about the key issue. We're talking about another issue, which is the nuclear issue. Primarily, you know, um, Iran's um, not-so-constructive role in the region has never been uh, dependent on uh, a nuclear power or some kind of superior qualitative advantage. In fact, um, uh, a very interesting argument can be made that uh, when, it's, when it comes between the Iranians and the Gulf uh, in kind of leadership in the region, the Iranians uh, always perform better in times of chaos, and the Gulfis always perform better in times of peace. And you can only look at Lebanon, for example, and who um, kind of played a larger um, patronage role in Lebanon and at which period. So I think the key issue here is that we are muddling through on the Iranian file, very similarly to how we've been muddling through on the Syrian file. And this is the view, I think, from the Gulf. Um, I say this quite confidently. Um, and I think what the Iran deal does, it implicitly divides those things from each other. It divides what's actually happening on the ground and the, and the belligerent and, and the instability in the region with uh, the, the uh, nuclear file and sees them very separately. And we have seen this by the Obama administration separating those two things and looking at them quite surgically, I would have to say. And I think Camp David itself reasserts these things. What has come out of Camp David is kind of a, a um, is kind of an agreement to kind of react to the the I think the causes of of, of uh, uh, frustration for Gulf leaders, as opposed to it seems that we're placating them with with with, uh, with some agreement, some reassurances, some ballistic uh, uh, missile defense system, things like that. But, you know, we have a saying in Arabic, which is that uh, uh, I see you talk and I believe you, I see your actions and I'm less surprised. What really is happening is that we're recognizing that Iran is being basically brought into the world system, but not really from the front door, from the back door. So this is not to say that Iran is not a civilizational power. That is a reality. This iteration of Persia is scarred by the Iraq-Iran war. Uh, but, you know, Iran has demonstrated willingness to remobilize itself towards building reach in the region. Um, and I think we're stuck between two act, two options, and we're choosing something in between that I think doesn't help either goal. So we either confront Iran and say we will not stand for this, 
always say we have recognized that Iran is a civilizational power and it's part of the framework of the region, and we take a much larger uh, agreement, and we have kind of a big boys conversation. What we're having right now is a slow kind of integration, very kind of backdoorish, very kind of subtle, where at some point it will be a fait accompli that Iran is now uh, uh, very much calling the shots in a whole uh, host of issues and, and, and matters in the region. And I think what we would have wanted in the Gulf, I think what the Gulf, what the, what, what the leaders in the Gulf would have wanted is more leadership from the U.S. administration on the strategic uh, moment. If this really is a historic moment, if, you know, people still believe that this may be something as, you know, as ridiculous as the claim might sound, if it's something remotely as close as opening China or anything like that or rehabilitating uh, Iran into the, into the world system, uh, it could be transformational, let's act that way. And let's really sit down and talk about all the files together. Let's not ignore everything else that's happening uh, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, and say these are different kinds of issues, and if we take away this and that. I think it's, 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 there has been kind of a very clinical division between carrot and stick, and very clinical division between Iran's domestic nuclear program and Iran's regional uh, uh, thing. So I think there's been a lack of imagination on this. And Cap David really is basically placating uh, um, the fears that are emanating from this lack of imagination, from the surgical approach. And so in that way, I think we're not deciding to basically uh, um, take a very, very strong position against Iran, nor are we trying to basically have a big boys, large conversation about the region. You know, if America really needs to kind of pull back, if America is overwhelmed, if America is going through an isolation period, Whatever it is that America is going through, I think a larger conversation, a more strategic one, would have been much more helpful than what we're really seeing is tactics, tactics, tactics. Excellent, um, uh, Michelle, and thank you, thank you, Dove and Michelle, for your insights. We'll now go ahead and introduce how the question and answer process works. I'll get us started with a question or two while the audience is getting their questions into the queue. At this time, we'll be opening the line to questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key, followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order which they are received. Please be sure to introduce yourself when asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, press star 2. Excellent. Well, thank you. Um, there, there was a common theme through both of your um, remarks, and I, I, I liked the big boy conversation from uh, Michelle. Um, and, and it sort of comes down to the, you know, the, the administration's boldness with regard to striking a, a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, am I hearing that both of you were thinking that you, were looking for similar boldness regarding the United States' discussions and proposals for its security arrangements with the Gulf? But if so, what would you suggest? What would you have liked to see as pieces of that if you agree with the first proposition? Doug? Well, I happen to think that the deal as it's currently structured is a disaster. And uh, I suspect that uh, the Gulf states are waiting to see, as I think uh, uh, far, uh, Foreign Minister um, Al-Jabeer put it, we want to wait and see what it actually looks like. Um, maybe it will be refined. If it's not refined, again, the issue isn't, and I agree with Michelle, the central issue is not really the nuclear issue per se. 
Um, first of all, I, I should make clear that I don't think the Israelis are the ones that really are, need to worry about the Iranian uh, nuclear capability because the, the Israelis have the ability to retaliate in a pretty brutal way. Uh, and that's assuming any Iranian missile can actually get through all the Israeli defenses. The worry in the Gulf, and I think Michelle alluded to this, is that the Iranians are already disrupting life in four countries. And uh, if they get, as I mentioned, additional resources as a result of the lifting of sanctions, as a result of the unfreezing of, of the funds that have been held for decades, then they, they're not necessarily going to use those monies to improve the lives of their citizens. They could use a large chunk of those monies to continue to disrupt life in the Gulf. And there is a worry, a nagging worry, that uh, at the end of all of this is uh, an American uh, decision to essentially let Iran be the major power in the Gulf once again, uh, kind of the way we handed things over to the Shah. Uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and there, if that's the case, then the whole American promise of military assistance and military arms is kind of beside the point. So uh, that, I think, is the central issue here. And um, yes, the nuclear issue is a major element. It's not the only element. I think Michelle is absolutely right about that. And we have simply lost sight of where we think we're headed. It, 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 it may be more than tactical in the sense that if indeed there's a strategy to, to bail out of the region and let the Iranians be, if not the dominant power, a dominant power, that's a strategy I think is totally wrong-headed. Uh, what, what would you have liked to have seen in particular? Yeah, just a very quick comment, uh, just as I get, uh, say this. Um, it's important to note that this period when the Shah, uh, when, the, when you know, as, as, as Doug says, that the Shah basically uh, was handed over the region, a lot of the current leaders in the Gulf remember that. You know, it's not too long ago, and, and a lot of them are old enough to remember that period and to see that kind of shift that happened uh, with U.S. policy. So this doesn't... This isn't the new generation that doesn't remember this. Maybe, maybe Tamim is young, uh, 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 Prince Hazan Salman, but everybody else was, 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 uh, was pretty, you know, young, was pretty, uh, there at that moment. I, I would have liked, you know, I think, I think there should have been a very frank conversation with the Gulf and be like, look guys, it's not about the nuclear deal and we're going to have a large conversation, maybe invite the Egyptians to it, not necessarily the Turks. And basically talk with Iran about how basically the region is going to evolve. I think the point that is, the message that's, that, that, that is coming through is that we're going to release a lot of money. And I agree with Doug. Most probably this, a lot of this money is going to go out there to support Syria, to support Lebanon, to support others. Not very differently from how the USSR itself was starving and a lot of its kind of proxy states were getting a lot of that, a lot of resources and support. Uh, uh, and I think that's, that's kind of thing. If we believe that uh, we would like to reintegrate Iran into the global system, this is not the way to do it. The way to do it is not to give them a nuclear weapon. Although I think it's, 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 it's not the nuclear weapon that's really going to be the cause of additional kind of instability. If we believe that Iran, you know, the conversation should be, okay, I get it. You know, you were alone in the Iraq-Iran war and you've been scarred by this. Iraq war happened and you felt that was a way for you to reinsert yourself into the region beyond just Lebanon. Fine, let's have a big boys conversation about 
how do we all co-run the region? Let's talk about how the Gulfies could eventually make investments in south of Iran to support the Sydney community that is poor. Let's really think creatively, right? And let's really, like, have an adult conversation about how Iran no longer can be a belligerent state. But if we just give them a nuclear, you know, uh, uh, green light, uh, with, and I subscribe very much to the Schultz uh, uh, Kessinger article that says that, you know, we really don't have very good mechanisms on how to manage that, then what are we doing? Iran doesn't feel the need to reintegrate and behave because you're not holding it accountable to the actual things that actually do bother us, do create instability. Nuclear bombs don't create instability. Uh, supporting non-state actors and under undermining governments uh, in the region do. And so I feel like we're talking the whole thing, the, st the strategy of the re-engagement with Iran is from the wrong end of the stick. It's not about the nuclear issue. It's about the role in the region. And we're not talking about the role of the region. And that's why, you know, uh, Obama has to take out two days and sit down with the Gulf leaders and say, okay, no, we are with you, we support you, because he is actually tackling the issue from the wrong end. Very interesting. Let, let me just um, direct, ask one more question, then we'll, then, and then we'll start the, the broader Q&A. I'll read from the... Um, somewhat bureaucratic sounding but interesting last paragraph of the annex to the statement. And I think there's something in here, but it really depends on how it's executed, and, and I would love to, to hear your thoughts. It says that the leaders, to ensure continuity of those efforts and speedy implementation of decisions at the Camp David uh, joint statement, they directed their respective administrations to strengthen the framework of the existing USGCC Strategic Cooperation Forum to include more frequent ministerial and technical meetings for foreign affairs, defense, security, economic, and other areas, and they agreed to meet again in a similar high-level format in 2016 to advance and build upon the strategic partnership announced today. There was an interesting piece by Derek Chalet, who recently left the administration, um, earlier this week where he talked about the importance of a work plan, of a work plan that tasks the ministries of all parties here to make much more progress, to consult more frequently, to strengthen military interoperability and planning and intelligence assessments. And I was looking closely for this before the summit, and I, I guess the statements, the sentences that I read are, are as close as I got. But isn't that sort of the makings of a, a movement toward... Um, toward a more structured uh, arrangement, or am I reading too much into this stuff? I think you're probably reading too much into it. I don't doubt that they'll have more meetings. Uh, I don't doubt that they'll have more exercises and uh, step up the training. Uh, they're going to do all of that, but that's not the central issue. Um, that is, again, the sort of transactional stuff. What are they going to be meeting about? Will they be discussing how to deal with riots in Bahrain or riots in the eastern province or stopping Hezbollah or dealing with the, Sun the, the Sunni Shia problem in Iraq. I mean, it's the substance of what they talk about and then what they then do about what they've talked about. That's the issue. And, and of course, that paragraph doesn't really say very much about that because I don't think the administration wants to say much about it. Now, think about this. In 2016, there's supposed to be another meeting. But by 2016, there could be an Iranian deal on, on, on their nuclear program. That's going to change and color this entire last paragraph. In fact, maybe the Gulf states wouldn't even show up at that point. They'll be so furious. So, yes, these, these are wonderful intentions, and these are things that need to be done. 
but they missed the central point, which Michelle put probably far better than I did because he's on the ground out there. What is the role of Iran in the Gulf? How does it really become part of the international community? Is it a rogue state that's absorbed in the international community, which is what it seems to be uh, taking place, or does it become a serious, uh, to use Bob Zellick's term, stakeholder in the international community acting responsibly? I don't see Iran undertaking the latter role. So if they become the former, a rogue state that's accepted, we've got big-time problems. Michelle, any thoughts? Barry, I really have to apologize. Uh, you must be very frustrated that your two speakers are agreeing more than disagreeing. Um, but yes, I think I think meeting is very good. Uh, but again, I think we're meeting in a reactive fashion. It would have been great, you know, if uh, you know when Obama came to came to office and and and, uh, and gave that big speech in 2009 in Cairo, if he started some kind of annual Arab League U.S. summit or GCC U.S. summit. We're having this summit, we're talking about having this annualizing this meeting only because the Gulf uh, uh, states are very worried about uh, um, the Obama administration's affair almost, love affair or fascination with this idea of reintegrating Iran into the system. So again, it's very tactical, uh, it's, it's very reactive to something. It's not the U.S. saying, hey, let's, let's talk together and maybe eventually one day we can have a trilateral summit where Iran is also involved. We can have those conversations in a strategic sense as opposed to me telling you one extra thing or, or, or me reassuring you one more time. And, you know, I've heard people talk about Carter Doctrine 2.0 and things like that. That's all fine and good when you're in a reactive mode. The reality of the matter is um, I, I think there is no imagination on, on what uh, Iran will do. The fact that the Obama administration has to reassure Gulf allies that Iran, the country we reintegrate into the global system, will behave, and if they don't behave, we're going to defend you, implies, you know, think about it there, right? I mean, we always say, we're next to Iran, you guys are in a different continent, and so we always have to deal with that. I've heard people say, at the end of the day, if they have to reassure us this much, that means that they're not sure how Iran is going to conduct itself after this. There is no mechanism, there is no requirement, there is nothing in the deal about acting in the acting how it should act in the region, what should policies be, etc. And so the region looks like it's fine. You know, they could get the most civilian nuclear program, but they could continue to intervene in places that undermine GCC security. Where does that leave us? What do you do? You call the Iran and say, these guys are intervening. He'll say, yeah, but, I mean, that's not part of the nuclear deal. They have not, they've observed all of these things. Develop something strategic when we are really just at the basic level, just reassuring uh, when, when the U.S. is really just trying to reassure its allies that it's not throwing them under the bus, when it really, really, really feels like that on the ground. Thanks to both of you. And now we will um, proceed to the question queue. First up, we have Paul Schinkman of U.S. News and World Report. Yeah, hi. Can you all hear me okay? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of get follow up on this point about what came out of the summit. Do you, do you get the impression that the administration going into the summit thought that something substantive was going to come of it? And if, if so, what do you think went wrong? And if not, I mean, what was sort of really the point of doing all this? Well, I, 
I can't speak for the administration. Uh, needless to say, uh, I'm of a different uh, political hue, but it does seem to me that what they were trying to do was essentially to uh, reassure the Gulf states to the point of uh, having of minimizing the opposition to a nuclear deal. Uh, I think what they wanted to do was essentially isolate the Israelis on this. Uh, the Israelis have made a, a serious strategic mistake, in my view, uh, in that they've become a, virtually the sole spokesman of opposition to this deal, when, in fact, uh, as I said, the Arabs are just as opposed. Um, but, uh, you know, it would be one thing if uh, it was just Mr. Netanyahu fulminating as he has been for years on this. It's quite a different thing if... The Arab states are just as upset and are seen to be just as upset. And I think the administration's strategy was somehow to uh, cajole, pacify, reassure, pick your term, uh, the Gulf Arabs that they, they would be looked after. And that would essentially minimize their opposition, their vocal opposition, uh, to any deal that would emerge and essentially leave it just to the Israelis. Uh, and I think that strategy failed because it's clear that the uh, Arabs are holding their fire, um, but they haven't, but as you heard from Michelle, and I, and I think he's absolutely right, um, their fundamental concern has not been addressed, which is what is going to be the role of Iran once this deal is consummated. <laughs> Michelle, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, not so much. Um, I think the the, uh, the Gulf leaders knew that they were coming uh, uh, to be uh, to be managed effectively uh, and and to be sued and, and comforted. Um, I think the Obama administration probably um, had a set of uh, options on and it was a toolkit that it was willing to offer uh, the 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 Khaliji, uh, to kind of get to that. I think. Uh, by and large, uh, the Gulf states have basically, I think by and large, it's a fait accompli from the point of view of the Gulf states. They're hoping the deal is going to drag, it's going to move into the next administration maybe, or something like that, or it's going to be rescinded. Uh, I think they're comforted by the fact that Congress now uh, um, has, has a voice in the deal, uh, because they feel like it's a free lunch <coughs> for, for the Iranians. But yeah, I think they left, you know, their expectations were very, very low coming into that uh, meeting. Um, maybe at best, you know, I think they came for the photo op, and, 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 and that photo op is something to be sent to the um, to the Iranians so they can see that. But yeah, I, I don't know if the... I don't know even, actually, maybe I'll disagree with Doug here a little bit. I don't know if, if, if the Obama administration had high hopes, really, of this meeting. I think it was really just morphine. Let's bring them in, let's show them that we still care, let's show them that they are still our friends, they tell them we remember, you know, the, the, the post-9-11 period when they cooperated with us fighting terrorism and, and intelligence and Afghanistan and all of these things. Let's just do that. Um, you know, I think the expectations were so low on both ends, and you felt it in the energy. You felt it in the energy even in the follow-up. Yeah. Um, let me, let me uh, turn to a, a next question. And uh, those on the call, remember, if you would like to ask a question, please press the... Star key followed by the one key, so star one on your phone. Let me come back to each of you, though, first before we go to the next 
uh, questions and ask something that hasn't been addressed yet. I mean, if this all plays out as you see it playing out, we've heard threats and murmurs and whispers from the Saudis that they might um, have similar nuclear ambitions stimulated by the what looks like the outlines of this deal, which allows Iran to enrich uranium uh, even within the confines of the of the of the agreed deal. How serious do you think this is? You know, will the summit further will the absence of bold results at the summit further stimulate that, or do you think this is more rhetoric and they wouldn't wouldn't take such a drastic action? Oh, I think they're serious. Uh, I was told by uh, one of the Gulf foreign ministers uh, that uh, he believed that Saudi Arabia, and this is not a Saudi, this is not uh, uh, Foreign Minister Al-Jabeer, obviously, uh, but one of the other ones, that he believed the, the Saudis had an implicit deal with the Pakistanis that all the assistance they've, uh, they've been uh, giving the Pakistanis over the years would be in exchange for nuclear capability. I think the Saudis are very serious, and I think uh, King Salman wouldn't have said what he said unless uh, he meant it. I, 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 I don't know how serious the Saudis are, but I think all options are on the table. Primarily, you know, I mean, if you remember the UAE and its nuclear uh, uh, agreement and the 123 system it was hailed as a model by parties, you know, east and west, you know, think, of, think about how, how, how the UAE feels. Think how the perspective is that we followed all the rules and, and then somebody else does not follow the rules. And it feels a little bit like, like, like a jail, you know. Like the world system today feels like a jail. If you kind of demonstrate that you're a tough guy and that you have enough resilience to basically not follow the rules and beat up a couple of small people, then, you know, everybody else is going to kind of see. So Iran, by being a belligerent uh, uh, and uh, player in the region, um, gets to negotiate to enrich uh, inside Iran while the UAE being a, you know, a security partner of the UAE, of the U.S., and, and doing all set of things and trying to be a model um, on, on, on uh, liberalism when it comes to women, when it comes to diversity, cultural tolerance, you know, means, if you may, that, that the West, you know, responds to very well, uh, gets that kind of a deal. So what is the message to the Gulf? The message to the Gulf is that if you want to have a good relationship with the West, a lot of people don't know whether this is just Obama or a real shift in the U.S. policy to the region or to the world. They only respect people who play hard, not people who play by the rules. I think this is the ultimate message that's coming out of this. Iran did a whole host of things that we condemn globally, and it got this awesome deal. We played by the rules that the West has set up, and we get these kind of different rules. So what's the message? The message is that it doesn't pay to play by the rules. I think this is really dangerous because also I think it's not just, uh, you know, I mean, the Filipinos, the Vietnamese, the, the, the Japanese, everybody's watching what the U.S. is doing uh, with, the, in the, with the Gulf countries in the GCC summit. And they're like, what happens on its next? I mean, you know, this is just Iran. It's not China. It's not another kind of big, large uh, state that can play a role. So I think um, for the Gulf, all options are on the table at this point, you know. I mean, within this space of rationality, I mean, is nothing going to be like Qadhafi, like some kind of covert program, but all options are on the table, and if, you know, if the U.S. says, no, you can't do that, really, the question would be, why not? Give me a good reason why we shouldn't pursue things the way the Iranians did, because in the end, you gave them a deal. Now, let me just add to that. It's, it's, we, 
we already have precedent for exactly what Michelle was talking about, namely North Korea. And in fact, North Korea reached agreements with us, I believe, in 1994 and basically broke them. So now you'll have a second major case of that. Uh, and yes, uh, if, if this is the way it works, then why shouldn't the Gulf states go ahead and uh, take care of themselves any way they can? Thank you. And we now have uh, the next questioner, Michael Tyson of the Atlantic Council. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, and, and gentlemen, thank you very much for your uh, comments. I, I specifically appreciate uh, Mr. Gregali, your comment about Iran uh, and, and how this is all happening with them coming through the back door. I, I think personally that that is due to a lack of trust. Um, which is something that is going to take a long time to sort through um, with a variety of topics. So we, we have this council meet this week, and I'm, I'm getting to really a two-part question. The first part of it is we come to the, the summit, and it looks from the annex and, and from all other accounts that the large majority of the discussion was based off of military um, discussions, arms sales, and and other things related to hard power and security, um, was it a was it uh, intentional to leave out discussions on economics um, and other diplomatic? Or although there was a touch of that, other diplomatic efforts to reassure the Gulfies with how uh, the U.S. is approaching this uh, nuclear deal and and the other ancillary items that come with it. And then the second part of the question is, um, how do we deal with, I, I think there was a part of a bet, basically, to say, well, we, we're looking to get everybody at the table, and then folks didn't show up to the meeting uh, that obviously were desired to come. How do we, how do we approach that uh, in the future to be able to sh reassure those folks that, uh, i.e., Saudi Arabia and others, that we... Uh, we mean to reassure them. Thank you. Well, let me let me deal with the first part first. I mean, what what would what would they say about economics? Uh, as I said, uh, the first thing that's likely to happen uh, is a, an influx of funds to Iran, uh, and uh, there's everybody believes, quite frankly, that uh, it's not going to be a hundred cents on the dollar going to improve the Iranian economy, uh, and so. You know, the more you talk about uh, economics and uh, the Iranian economy, the more suspicions you're probably going to arouse because nobody's going to believe it. Uh, I think that's the fundamental reason why that wasn't raised. Uh, and, of course, uh, again, since the, the focus was uh, excessively on, on the nuclear deal and implicitly and excessively, let's put it that way, then sure, you had to talk about hard power, although, again, the hard power doesn't necessarily address the kinds of threats that Iran really poses. Uh, so, so that's really on, on your first question. Um, your, your second one, remind me again, please, quickly. How do we, how do, how do we uh, reassure the folks that didn't show up okay. to the meeting? How, how do we reassure, yeah. yeah, how do we reassure the Saudis and others? Well, I think the only reassurance that they're going to have is what this deal looks like. I mean, at the end of the day, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, and, and no words are going to reassure the Saudis or anybody else in the region if the deal uh, looks as bad as they as it could. Uh, 
Uh, if, the, if there's some tightening up of some of the, uh, uh, the big, big loopholes, like uh, pretty much the promise to uh, stay away from military facilities uh, and the issue of uh, how to deal with R&D and so on, then uh, that's going to lead to one kind of dialogue. If, if on the other hand, uh, the worst fears about the, the, about the agreement based on the language of the framework are realized, then they're going to have a very different situation. I don't know how you're going to reassure them. Very quickly, um, I think um, I think it's very difficult to, under, to imagine kind of what um, what could have been said about the economic relief. Uh, what kind of reassurances can you can you um, can you give um, to Gulf states or others about how Iran's going to use its funds? I mean, one I mean, even something as simpler than that, the key contentious point is that the Iranians have signaled that they may reserve the right to deny access to some sites that they, they deem them as key security, kind of strategic national security bases or, or, or spaces. So I'm not so sure what, you know, I think the reason why you haven't heard so much about that is because there isn't so much about that at this point, frankly. Um, how do you reassure uh, Gulf allies? Um, and so that they do attend the meeting. Is this about the, the actual, the, the, the actual King Salman skipping the meeting itself, or is this something a bit wider? I, I didn't understand. Well, we have to respond to folks not showing up to the meeting with with further and future diplomatic efforts to to reassure them all, because otherwise we're going to have major gaps in our diplomatic coverage in the region uh, when it comes to this nuclear deal. So, so where do we go from here with those folks? Well, it's very simple. Don't hold secret talks with Iran and Oman without telling your traditional allies about this a little bit earlier, at the very, very top level at least, so you can actually win them over and reassure them. The way we found out about this, and I'm sorry to use we because I, I just want to kind of convey kind of the, the, the view from this region. The way the, the way the way Gulf leaders found out about it, and even like kind of just the Gulf Gulf countries, citizens, is it's almost like something you know again like with the backdoor thing. It's something that was happening very quietly because people felt that it was a bit controversial and could not be shared. And so the whole energy of the Iran nuclear deal reeks of, 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 of some kind of mistrust or some kind of secrecy. Uh, and why would you not tell the Gulf? Because they get upset. Why would they get upset? Because it's going to freak them out. Why would it freak them out? Because it doesn't seem to be in their interest Although they do take a step back and they stand on the hill that Obama stands on when he looks at the Gulf in the future, it's a great deal. Nobody knows where that hill is. I think that's the point. And until the, the Obama administration is able to show everybody else how realistically we can get to that hill and then see and imagine the future of, of, Gulf, uh, uh, of, of Gulf security, and I'm talking about Gulf as in the actual uh, 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 space, it's going to be very difficult to kind of uh, predict uh, further uh, misunder misunderstandings or to kind of ensure that they don't happen. It's really difficult because you have to understand how it looks, the way it happened, the way Gulf countries found out about it, the way the, 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 the details of the deal are really kind of vague on mechanisms and enforcement. And really, it's just about assuming you're snoozing the Iranian nuclear bomb for 10 15 years. So what are you going to do about Iran? And so you read into that. What, are, what is the U.S. policy on, on Iran's performance, Iran's role in the region? It's also snoozing. So you have kind of a snooze policy within the region. 
That's not really policy because we have to, we're going to be there when, when, when this news is over. Maybe Obama won't be, but we will be there. And so I think this is where the Gulf countries are coming from. Okay. Thanks very much, much, uh, Michelle. We next on the, in the line have, on the line, have Nicole Gowett of Bloomberg News. Nicole, please, please state your question. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. 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 Okay, excellent. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things Dove has said about the, the type of assistance that the GCC is leaving with and, and the fact that it's not actually going to address the kind of threats that Iran poses. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kind of assistance would address those sort of asymmetric threats that it, it poses to these different countries around the region. Well, um, we do cooperate with them, uh, obviously, on some counterterrorism issues. The, the, it, the, the, look, these, these folks train with us already. They work alongside us already. Um, to me, that's, that's not the central issue. The central issue is the commitment as to whether we would, uh, for instance, intervene in Saudi Arabia if there was an insurrection. I didn't see that commitment. Uh, and sending a bunch of S-18s doesn't really do the job, uh, or S-15s or whatever. Now, uh, of course, um, you want to have the uh, Arab, Gulf Arab states having sufficient uh, conventional capability to um, reassure themselves that the Iranians won't try something in the conventional sphere. Uh, and here it's kind of interesting because uh, essentially what we're talking about sending them is more of what we've already sent them for what we've already promised to send them. There wasn't anything really new coming out of this. So on the one hand, if you want to talk in conventional terms, um, there really were no great departures. Uh, and on the other hand, if you want to talk about dealing with the unconventional threat, it has a lot more to do, I think, with the specifics of our commitment uh, rather than, uh, you know, sure, we, could, we can train together, we can... Uh, we can exchange more intelligence and so on, um, but basically that's not really at the heart of it. Uh, the heart of it is, would we intervene? I mean, and then there are these inconsistencies. On the one hand, we we haven't released spare parts to the Bahrainis. Uh, on the other hand, we're telling them we're going to protect them. So clearly, and the reason we won't release spare parts to the Bahrainis or, or have really dragged our heels doing it is because of the problems they have with the, with the Shia. So Are any of these countries actually asking for that kind of commitment, though, for an intervention? I mean, it's... No, look, that's not what they're looking for. Okay, so... I, I agree with you. I agree with you. They're, that's not what they're looking for. What they're looking for, for quite frankly, is uh, some backtracking on, on the, the progress of this Iranian deal. And, and uh, if, uh, as Michelle says, the issue is to reintegrate Iran, then there has to be a much broader discussion. Well, they didn't get either of those. They didn't get the broader discussion. They didn't get the reintegration. And frankly, they didn't even get a, a, an explicit commitment to uh, help to help them against unconventional threats. At least I didn't see that. Yeah. Can I ask, what do you think the, the point of reintegration is? Beyond bragging rights, when you talk to administration officials, if they even touch the subject, uh, is, it, is the argument that it would help you better contain or control Iran if they're within the system? And what's the what's the goal there? Are you asking me? I'm asking you both. 
but please feel free. Oh, Michelle, why, Michelle, why don't you start? I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Well, you you've both spoken about what you see as a, a sort of an underlying goal of pulling Iran back into the world system through the back door, as you put it. And mm-hmm. I'm asking you why you think they're pursuing that goal beyond the bragging rights of uh, of being able to say, you know, we resuscitated relations with Iran. I mean, what, is, it, is it that they feel like they can get better control or insight or intel on Iran? I mean, what, why? Why do this? Why is the U.S. pursuing uh, what it believes is the reintegration of Iran into the world order? Is that the question? Yes. Why do you think? I mean, uh, I, th- I think it's because Obama believes it would be a great uh, uh, diplomatic uh, success. Okay, but beyond that, beyond the bragging rights of, like, check, I, you know, I did this with Iran, I mean, what, what does the U.S. gain from doing that? Are there strategic benefits? Are there intel benefits? Are there, it, it, would it actually give the U.S., the world community, greater control or insight? I mean, like, is there anything beyond the diplomatic success? That you see? I think Iran is a great country. I think it has 80 million people that don't have enough iPhones. I think they're very, very intelligent. Their bachelor programs are fantastic, and they make very good immigrants to the U.S. Uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's a great culture. I enjoy Persian music myself, but, I mean, uh, uh, I think from the Obama administration's perspective, this is about going down in history and achieving something. I mean, this is an administration that has not been able to achieve anything in the region. You know, it's not very happy with the outcome in Egypt. It's not very happy. It didn't really, it didn't have the capacity to, like, make the Israeli-Palestinian process uh, progress. It it completely gave up on Syria. Iran is the last option to leave the Middle East slightly better than it arrived to it. I, I have. Uh, I really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm. 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 Uh, I'm unable to see anything a bit more strategic than that. It, you yeah. know, I have a slightly different uh, take. I mean, I agree with all of that, but I think it's something deeper. Uh, I think mm. that this administration wants to get the heck out of the Middle East. It's simple as that. And if it's going to get out of the Middle East, um, it needs to have an accommodation with Iran. Now. To have an accommodation with Iran requires a couple of other things, and you can see signs of it already. Uh, one is uh, a downgrading of the relationship with the Israelis. Now, that doesn't mean elimination of the relationship. It just means that the Israelis are no longer as important as they were. I would argue that pretty much the same will be seen if there's a deal with Iran, regarding the Gulf states. They will be important, but not as important as they were. And I think the the objective is to get out of the Middle East, and the only way we can really get out of the Middle East is if we reach an accommodation with the Iranians. Now, that is, to me, that's a totally flawed approach because the Iranians don't show any intention of changing their behavior one iota. But we are determined to get out of the Middle East. This has been Mr. Obama's objective for the last six and a half years. And if he can pull this deal off and convince himself that this is the key to getting out, then he will believe that he's done what he wanted to do. 
I think it's a disastrous approach, but I think that's where we're at. Very tight. Ask a follow-up. Um, let's, let's, let's move on to another. We have one, okay, five more sure. minutes and one more question. But uh, thank you for your excellent questions, Nicole. Um, the last question goes to Barbara Usher of BBC. Thank you. I wondered if both of you could speak to the bigger picture of the regional power struggle at the moment. I mean, this is not just about white knights and fears and all the rest. There are naked power interests on both sides. There's this long-standing rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Gulf have also supported their own proxies in that struggle. Uh, and they're seeing everything through that prism at the moment. So should they not be overstating the threat from Iran? And doesn't the U.S. have to be mindful of that in terms of its policy? I don't think they're overstating it. Um, yes, there have been rivalries. I mean, if you want to talk about rivalries, you've got to build the Turks into that one, too. You've probably got to build the Egyptians into that one, too. There are longstanding internal rivalries inside the GCC. Uh, that uh, erupt every so often and then subside, sure there are rivalries all over the place. But the fact of the matter is that on this issue, namely Iranian uh, domination, hegemony, uh, primus inter pares, I, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, I don't think there's an exaggeration. And the reason for that is unless you totally discount statements by Iran's leaders, and the behavior of Iran in Yemen and Syria and Lebanon and in Iraq. Uh, unless you discount all of that, then uh, they have every reason to take Iran seriously. So, yes, there are rivalries. Uh, there always have been in the region. Um, but as long as the Iranians not only say they're going to do things, but actually follow up with actions, uh, I think that uh, this is uh, taken very seriously by the Arabs. Um, yeah, I think I think one, you know, it's not a sectarian rivalry. Uh, sectarianism is a card that Iran has been able to use since the revolution. Um, I think, you know, Iran as a civilization, as a power, as, as, as a regional uh, um, kind of large uh, uh, force, has always felt the need to kind of expand its force. It's just historically never been interested in the south. It was always a kind of land power, not a sea power. Oil changes dramatically, and so you've seen Iran play a much more hegemonic role um, in, in, in the South uh, from the 1960s, 70s onwards, and it continues. And it was very much driven, and it was very much driven by uh, by the fact that the um, source of wealth for Iran was now more in the South. Um, I think, from the Gulf perspective, it is very unnerving because. You know, you start hearing things from the U.S. saying, well, apparently Obama is more interested in Iran because also intellectually it interests him more as a civilizational power than uh, than the Gulfies, who really are just Bedouins. Um, they don't share our values. They're not really liberal. They're not really democracies, while Iran is theoretically a very complex form of a democracy. Um, and then you have people saying, if you look at the Iranian leadership, we disagree with them, but the Iranian people love us. And if you look at Saudis, the Saudi leadership uh, are allies, but like the Saudi people don't agree with us in our way of living. And these are mass, mass gross generalizations. I mean, the most liberal Iranian person is still very much a nationalist uh, uh, and very much believes in, in the superiority uh, uh, and the historic mistakes uh, that have happened uh, that have led the Iranians to kind of cower before 
the Ottomans and, 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 and other kind of Islamic civilizations before that. There is a very kind of deep sense of moment, I think, and, and what, the, uh, what the administration has done is that it's accepted that as the underlying kind of right, as a historic right. So rivalry, I think rivalry has been going on for a long time. Many people argue that the Iranian Revolution forced the Saudis to one-up themselves on conservatism. Uh, in the 70s, there are reports of cinemas and, and things and toleration of, 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 uh, of much more liberal kind of norms for women before the Iranian Revolution. And so there is a rivalry on religion. There is a rivalry over the region. Uh, but then once you have to do, what, what you have to do is also take into account that there are other camps. There is the political Islam camp. There is the jihadism camp. And so political Islam includes Turkey and at some occasions Qatar. The, 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 uh, and then you have the Iranian camp. So it's really multiple camps. It's no longer that. It's just that because the Muslim Brotherhood and its affiliates have been on the defense in the last kind of two years, it seems that they are gone. But I'm pretty sure they're going to be back. And so we're fighting, uh, you know, we're in a very multifaceted uh, um, kind of uh, uh, battle here in the Arab world, in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, it comes down to the age-old debate that happens in the U.S. every time something like this happens. Is it about stability or is it about spreading values? And, you know, uh, these are questions that I think people are very, uh, in the Gulf at least, believe that more and more, uh, um, it may seem that, that the U.S., having seen the Arab Spring turn into what it has turned into, is finding solace in, in, in some kind of uh, Iran opening up uh, via this nuclear deal because uh, I think Obama identifies Rouhani very well, Obama being, uh, coming after Bush, and Rouhani coming after Ahmadinejad, and he feels like they both kind of understand each other. They have to work within a system that's very complex and difficult, and they have to both basically try to achieve something through all of this tacticalness and then finally arrive at something strategic. I think this is all, you know, this all makes the Gulf feel very, very, very uncomfortable, and it makes them think, if the U.S. is not dependable, who do we go? And you see things, I mean, like the French are milking the Gulf right now because they see that the U.S., whether it's the arms sale process or, 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 or just general kind of uh, commitment, uh, a little bit shaky, and so the French come in. The French are not going to become the guarantors of security in the Gulf. And if they do, it's going to be really, really, I mean, what does that say about the U.S.? That they got out of the region but really put somebody else there. So, yeah, I think if the U.S. really is serious about uh, getting out of the region, uh, the way Doug says, somebody else is going to come in. Are we going to go shopping for allies, two, three kind of medium-sized countries that can, can provide that? But that becomes really messy, and I think the U.S. will find itself coming back into the region. It's just like Iraq. We shouldn't have been in Iraq in 2003. I agree with that. I don't agree with the Republican narrative, but we should equally, we should not have gotten out of Iraq that quickly uh, because now we're forced to go back into Iraq again. And so, you know, when you do something wrong, you at least you've got to fix it right and then, you know, get out of it conclusively or develop kind of a different approach to that as opposed to what we see today is, in and out, in and out, withdrawal and saying, we're getting out of the region. You can't get out of the region. But you've got to help the region, you know, arrive to kind of an agreement, the same way you did in Europe. And it's just a question, I guess, at the end for us is that, did we come too late? Is America done with leading the world? And so the Gulfies have to figure it out in a way differently than the Western Europeans did? It's unclear. I think these are all very important and big questions. And, you know, I'm sure we're all going to keep thinking about this for a long time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dov Zakheim, uh, Michel Gogali, 
an excellent conversation on some late-breaking developments that are of very significant importance for the United States and for its allies and partners. Thank you also for to all the participants, and please join us uh, for our next in the series of members conference members conference calls at the Atlantic Council. Thanks very much.